Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Welcome to episode 187 of The Stages Podcast. My guest today is actor Nicholas Eady. Nick's resume boasts an impressive list of high-profile television production that we affectionately embrace as key moments in our Australian television consumption. He gained success and fame in Australian television series such as Cop Shop, The Henderson Kids, A Country Practice and Medivac. He was recognised with the AFI Best Actor Award for the miniseries Vietnam, in which he co-starred with Nicole Kidman, and was nominated again for his portrayal of World War II Academy Award-winning cameraman Damien Para in John Dugan's Fragments of War. Extensive theatre credits with every major Australian theatre company also adorn his resume, including the premiere production of the musical Mamma Mia!, it is a career of great range and extraordinary craft, and stages relish the opportunity to catch up with the charming and talented Nicholas Eady. Nick, the last time that we were in regular contact, I think, was during our world travels. That's right. You were um, sort of a just a, a country ahead of me, I think. We, we meant to catch up, but we didn't. We tried. We, we tried, tried very hard, but it didn't work. You were, in, I think, in New York, and I was in London, and then I was in Barcelona, and you were in somewhere else. And I, I actually noticed a few of the chats we had on Messenger, and we tried hard to, to, to see each other, but we didn't make it, unfortunately. Yes. Did that I, was a great trip. It was a great trip, wasn't it? Did you see much in London that time? Theatre? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Did you actually, see? I, I saw, uh, in New York and London, I saw about 45 shows. So it was great. Wow. That's why you I, you go to London or New York, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. West End and Broadway, two great loves of our lives. That, did you see Funny Girl? Yes, I did. Oh, yeah. Did you love it? Yeah. And yeah. that was The Understudy? Did you see The Understudy? Yes, yes, yeah, that's she right. She was amazing. Because Sheridan Smith, I think, yes. was having time off. Yes, and it was The Understudy, who I thought was absolutely brilliant. And a great production. And in that glorious Savoy Theatre. Oh, such a beautiful theatre, the, the, the Savoy Hotel's right next door. And the Savoy operators were, were performed there originally. Ah, mm. beautiful theatre. And um, going to afternoon high tea in uh, the Savoy was quite a spectacular thing to do. <laughs> for, uh, 55 pounds for a scone and a cup of tea, but worth it. Yeah, people, places, things. Did you see that one? Oh. It was a, a great uh, uh, play and... Uh, about a woman in, in a psychiatric hospital and it's about her crazy mind and at once it's absolutely brilliant one of the best things I've ever seen and at one stage she has this nightmare and a, a, a replica of her comes out of the bed and another one comes out of the wall 
and another one comes up from the the, the floor, and it by the there's nine of them, nine hers in a yeah, you know, all at once, and um, you go, oh my god, and it's only a ninety second scene, but you've got nine extra people, and that's why Sydney will never see it. Yeah. Because it's just too expensive to get nine actors to you know, sit around for you know, ever and then have a ninety-second scene and go home. But um, oh, that's why, yeah, the West End Broadway. I am. Um, are we talk? Are we on? <laughs> <laughs> You've done it again. You've listened to these episodes. I know I have. I love them. I think you're doing a great job of archiving, it. and I'm very flattered that you want me. Oh, no. it's great. It would be no collection without Nicholas Eden. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of that, your commercial theatre now, or subsidised theatre, we tend to see a lot of productions which are, it can be one one person shows or a small cast, mm. maybe up to six if we're lucky. Yeah. But I do love the excitement of seeing a huge group of actors on stage telling a story. You know, your Nicholas Nickleby's, your Absolutely. your Lamers, your yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's something so magical about that. Have you been part of big plays like that, big stories on stage? <laughs> Um, funnily enough, I, one of the very first theatrical experiences I ever had was in Aida, the opera, at the concert hall of the Opera House, the Sydney Opera House. And um, we, Waverley College, we had we were in cadets. It was a cadet unit, and I think 300 of us. And in the grand march at the end of the second act, we all march on the stage. Yeah. And I listened to that that music and the, and the aria the, the, the sopranos and the, I would have tears rolling down my eyes as the spear carrier you know, go, oh my god this is so beautiful and yeah that's a cast of thousands you had the orchestra you had all the guards it was hugely spectacular and it, to be a part of that was just oh, amazing um, yeah but I, I a play like uh, Jerusalem which I did at the um, New Theatre I think that had a cast of about 17 or 18 and uh, all the great play that it is, you know, Sydney Theatre Company or people, they can't afford to do that. But yeah. the new can, because it's, you know, it's amateur. Yeah. Amateur, but you know, mostly professional people doing amateur work. To have access to some great, great plays, which they yeah. probably couldn't get the opportunity to do with uh, the main stage companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done a one-man play? Yeah. Well... In a way, I, I played... I can't remember the name of it now. It was a Mardi Gras show. I played a conductor, and it's him talking for 45 minutes while conducting an orchestra, which was there, at behind the audience, in the, some somewhere at the back of the audience. You couldn't see them. And so they were a 15-piece orchestra that I was conducting and talking about my life and eventually committed suicide at the end. So, yeah, I suppose that was a one-man show in a way. <laughs> I wish I'd seen it. It was really good. I wish I could remember the name of it. Love something. Uh, but it was it was really good. What do you love about being an actor, Nick? Oh, it's in my blood. It's yeah. just in my veins. I, I, I did a show. My father was an actor. And I was very, very lucky in that my father adored films and theatre and dance and ballet and opera. And I had an extraordinary childhood in that he took me to all these things, you know. And a little night music I remember seeing with him. um, Oh, uh, 1972 with Jill Perryman and 
Bartholomew John, Geraldine Turner. Yes, Bartholomew, yeah. yeah, yep, yep. Geraldine, yeah, who I eventually ended up working with and uh, all these people and um, Jesus Christ Superstar, which comes up an awful lot in your um, in your podcast. And I, I, I was just obsessed with Jesus Christ Superstar. When the album came out, I just played it to death. I used to get every light, every sort of bed light, all sorts of lights from the house and I put them all in my room and I'd have an orange orange sort of blanket and I'd lift I'd have the music playing I'd lift the orange light and then the green lighting came out and I'd do all the lighting for the show and I if I hadn't become an actor I think I would have become a, a lighting designer but um, finally I got to see Jesus Christ Superstar at the Capitol which was an extraordinary production and uh, you've talked to Brian Thompson about his amazing set um, my parents took me around the world when I was 14 and that I'd never been to anywhere except Brisbane and w- the first place we got to was New York and I remember arriving in New York on the subway I came out of the su- <coughs> subway at St. Patrick's Cathedral and I looked up and I went oh my god I'm home and I just had this feeling that I'd, I'd arrived at a place that understands me or I get and I just had this obsession with New York. My father, again, he took me to shows like Pippin, but he also showed me um, Jesus Christ Superstar on Broadway. And it was a completely different production. Absolutely loved it. Then we got to London and I saw a third production of Jesus Christ Superstar, the London production, which was equally amazing and completely different. That one started with a curtain that became the stage. So the whole beginning of it, just this curtain would just descend and become the stage it was just extraordinary I saw applause with um, Lauren Lauren McCall Private Lives with um, Maggie Smith Um, oh they're just extraordinary wonderful theatre that I was exposed to at a very young age all around Europe you know my father took me to De Rosen Cavalier in Vienna Um, just a 14 year old seeing this stuff at a very impressionable age to see all this amazing stuff and it gave me a, a love and thirst for travel and for theatre but your folks recognised in you a desire that's what you wanted to do with your life perhaps yeah well dad had steered me to love the arts anyway but um the first thing i ever did was um the tempest was a i was in year seven or eight i think seven and um i played ariel the fairy <laughs> <laughs> Six I'm foot sure. two of me. You're very butch fairy. Well, yeah, mate. And um, but I, it was, I loved it. I just thought this Shakespeare became a life for me, and I never really thought much about Shakespeare before. I was again, I think I was fifteen, so I'd just come back from the, you know, this world trip. So I was so urbane and amazing, and um, but I, I, I did Ariel, uh, which is a fabulous part, but a bit un, not typecasting for sure, and. Um, but I got a review in the Waverlyan, this is the Waverly College where I went to, and um, it said Nicholas Seedy was, the, by, in my opinion, the best actor in, in the show. His amazing intonation, amazing versatility, was well suited to the role of Ariel. See, I memorised it. That's how much it sort of came into my in my stream of thought. But that was then I thought, okay, I'm going to be an actor total tunnel vision, laser vision on this act, that I'm going to become an actor. What genius inspiration of your teacher too, that directed it, to cast a six foot two big fella <laughs> as Ariel. 
I don't know if it was inspiration or desperation. I don't think anybody really wanted to do it. <laughs> no, and it's funny that, that I was year seven or eight, or second, third form, as we used to call it. And I think most of the rest of the cast, Prosper, etc., were in year eleven or twelve. And the, so I was the ingenue, you know, the young one. And um, then they, they said, "Yes, we've got to concentrate on you, Nicholas. You, you're amazing. You're going to be very good." So they wanted to do Hamlet and play, me play Hamlet, but never got off the ground. I did do with uh, Rosebay Convent. Um, what were they called again? Rosebay Convent. King Coppel. King Coppel. Yep. And we did. They, they were all sort of our sister school in a way. We used to date all the girls and. Um, we did uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and I played Bobby Van Houston, that rich and good-looking American that's staying at the Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a little bit of a singing thing in that. Is that all The Boyfriend? The Boyfriend? The Boyfriend, yeah. yeah. That's, I was trying to think of that today, actually, and I knew it wasn't right, Thoroughly Modern No, The Boyfriend. The Boyfriend, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. You've got an amazing memory for um, recalling those quotes and dialogue from the players. Do I? Yeah, well, you, you've rattled <laughs> off a couple of them there. I, I hope... Well, I like to think that I'm still all there, and I, I do have a pretty good memory. People tell me that... Friends, they say, oh, you don't remember that. And some people don't remember entire trips that I did with them for a month. <laughs> we went on a skiing trip with my friend Jenny and, um, for a month in New Zealand, and she doesn't remember the whole trip. She doesn't remember going. <laughs> what? You, you, <laughs> you had that good a time. <laughs> yeah, you um, fabulously interesting, obviously. Not. So, Nick, tell me about Mervyn Eadie, because you say he was an actor, but he was also a radio announcer at the ABC. He was, yes. What a strange name, Mervyn. <laughs> I know, a few Mervs. Do you? Yeah, growing up in the country. Okay. Very popular name. I like Of it. a particular generation, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And I, I like it now, because I found out, that I think it's Welsh, and when you say, oh, it's Welsh, Mervyn, you know, it's just... What a nice ring to it. But there was a jingle going around at that time. Said, I'm marrying Mervyn. Mervyn doesn't know it yet, but he's going to ask me. You see, today's the first, the final week of my Pond's beauty plan. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember that very well. But um, he, yeah, Dad was, he, he was an actor. He wanted to be an actor. He was he was from Bris- Bundaberg originally, but he, he uh, was in Brisbane and um, he, he was one of the, first people to start the uh, the 12th Night Theatre Company in Brisbane. Which still runs today, Which I believe. Which still yeah. runs today, yeah. And he was one of the founding members. And uh, he did extraordinary work there. He did Hamlet, played Hamlet. He played Caliban in The Tempest, which I never... I never saw him act, unfortunately. In 1963, I think I was five or something, and he did Caliban. I can't imagine my father playing a monster, you know, but he did it. And uh, lots of uh, Noel Coward... Um, there was an, am- a, an amazing woman, Babette Stevens. Have you heard of her? No. I have, because she pops up in various conversations. I spoke to Rodney Delaney, who talks about Babette Stevens, and, and Barry Creighton. The Brisbane boys up there all, all talk about Babette. Babette. She was quite... So she was the local doyen. She was. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I, she used to come down to our place, and we lived in North Bondi, in a very, you know, very, very sort of, what's the word? Um, humble, <laughs> little semi-detached. And um, she'd sit there holding court. My mother, who's very down-to-earth from the country, calls a spade, a spade, 
and uh, Dad and her, Dad and Babette were going off about, oh, yes, how wonderful triumphs in Brisbane when we did present laughter and you were so funny and this. And Mum was just staring at me, going, God, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and I ended up, um, she, she was very fond of me and she gave me some, she almost bought me a book. There's one called Young Nicholas, I remember. But um, I eventually, years later, I was doing The Crucible at the QTC and I was playing um, John Proctor and she played um, Goody, the old one. The old lady, yeah. Um, she played that. Goody, Goody. Goody, Goody? That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and she had terrible trouble remembering her lines. Or goody Nurse. Is it Goody Nurse? Goody Nurse. That could be it. Yes. Yeah, we must research that, research that one. Anyway, she, she was, yeah, one of Dad's great friends. Barry Creighton, as you mentioned, they were very good friends. And I remember at the Shingle Inn, which was, a, a, I think it's still there, it's a, it's a, a cake shop, a very old world sort of uh, afternoon tea place. And they talked and talked and talked. And there was these lovely, delicious-looking candies on, on the table. And I went, mmm, delicious. And they just didn't notice. They were butterballs. <laughs> I was eating just oh. butter balls. And I thought they were yummy, but no, I ate the whole ten of them, I think. <laughs> and Barry and my father, Mervyn, hadn't even looked at me. You know, so. But Barry, yeah, Dad has wonderful friends. John West, who uh, used to run the, who used to compare the show. show the showman program. Showman. Yeah. And Dad used to um, replace him when he was on holiday. Um Dad also used to uh, go to Parliament in Canberra and would announce the the speaker for, you know, whatever it weren't worth. And and okay, at one time the seekers came in, and I was just like, oh my god, they came into the room, this tiny little room where he was looking at, you know, Parliament, and oh my god, the seekers! And Athol Guy stubbed out his cigarette, and I kept this this butt, and I put it in this plastic thing, and said, this was once Athol Guy's cigarette. <laughs> that was very show and tell for school. I thought it was amazing. Do you have any audio recordings of your father? No, huh? no, that's a real pity. Yeah, he died. Um, he was only seventy-three. He died in nineteen eighty-six. Wow. So, yeah, sort of didn't get around to that, unfortunately. No. Pre-technology. Any siblings? No, right. only child. Right. Uh, my father was 43 when he married, well, when they had me, and my mother was 40. And she'd had three hysterectomies, uh, sorry, three miscarriages uh, before me, and then had a hysterectomy straight after me. So I was this miracle child, and I was treated as such. I was very spoiled, yeah. very, very spoiled, <laughs> which, you know, probably wasn't a great thing, but, you know, I, was, you know, I wouldn't have ever gone to Europe and New York if... We yes, were, there were a whole tribe to take. Yeah, yeah. We, we were very... You know, we, we weren't poor, but we certainly weren't well off. You know, it was an ABC, you know, public servant you know, salary. So, yeah. What did your mum do? Mum, um, she's very, very intelligent. Her, she was brought up in Forbes, New South Wales, and her father was the mayor of Forbes, and her, her mother was the matron of the hospital. So they were quite something in Forbes, yeah. population 8,000. Um, <clears throat> mum, Lorna, her name is. My mum's name is Lorna. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. It's a gorgeous name. I Isn't think. it? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's a really nice thing to know. Lorna but Doris, my mum's. Lorna, 
Maria McDonald Ford Eighty. That's what she called this woman. <laughs> she was not pretentious at all, but she she had her twenty first in the town hall of Forbes. She was the most popular person because she was the eldest daughter of the mayor, and um, but very down to earth. Calls us. I think I said that spade a spade. Very direct, great wit, very sarcastic, and really really smart wit. And um, they mum mum and dad did uh, met on the ship going to London in 1948. I think it was between Perth and Bombay somewhere that they got to know each other. And then they continued the romance in London where the dad was there for two years, I think. He went over with Ray Barrett, in fact. And Ray Barrett and he were friends and Ray was a pit. Dad, not so much. He was working as a radio announcer for the BBC, but he gave up after a while and came back to Sydney. Mama on the in on the same right. She went to New York to see her best friend, who was married to a um, American GI, uh, after a war bride, and yeah. she lived in New York. And so Mum had New York, and so yeah. Even though she was very country, she had this urbane, rather sophisticated way of looking at the world, and it got even more. She used to have a real accent like that, but by the time I was at NIDA, she was around other people. She sort of you know mind her p's and q's a little bit. <laughs> but she was absolutely adored by my friends. Uh, she lived to the age of 95. She only died in 2013. And she was the second mum to so many of my friends who absolutely adored her. She was a big woman, large as life, and just so much love, so so interested in you, you know, and just knew all about your family and everything about you before you know, she'd finished for the day. Yeah, they're special mums, um, and yeah. I think you know when, you, when, when you're at drama school. Um, I'll tell you, <laughs> it's your interview, Nicholas, not me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Maybe I should. No, Lorna's good. I'm going to see Lorna, uh, my Lorna. Yeah, in um, uh, she's still in Ballarat. Yeah, a little town called Mirabara in country Victoria. Oh, Mirabara. Yeah. So I haven't seen her for 15 months because of the. Um, uh, How pandemic. old is she, if you don't mind me asking? 83 this year. Right. And she reminds you of it all the time. What? Oh, this is my last Christmas? No, no, oh, nothing no. like that at all. No, no, no. no. She, um, had that for 20 she likes to pass herself off as um, uh, 70 or 60. Oh, really? So she does the guessing game with anyone that she, she meets. which it's such can a be, female thing to yes. do. How old do you think I am? Yeah. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> oh, 108? <laughs> <laughs> No, I have a great aunt who has been telling us it's the last Christmas for the last 20 years, I think. <laughs> My mother played that card 20 years. <laughs> That's gorgeous. <laughs> but I was saying, you know, mums like that are very special. I, I had one when I was at drama school, a second mum, because, you you know, a lot of your mates that you're studying with come from interstate. Yeah, absolutely. And you invite them around for dinner or whatever, and there's that, that mother figure that, we can we can grasp lean towards because um, our own mum is is far away. That's right. Yeah, um, my father was as I said was with the ABC. The, the uh, studio used to be in Forbes Street, where the Horizon Building is now. And oh, um, right. And uh, so, but we lived the first place that I was born. I was born in St Margaret's Hospital, opposite the Beresford Hotel. When I was ever at the Beresford Hotel, I, I, thought, I was born across the road. I haven't come very far in life, have I? But uh, <laughs> I, but Dad, uh, Mum and Dad had this tiny one bedroom flat, and Dad would go to the Gladstone, which was the pub. It was that the hundred metres that way, or hundred yards that way, and um, the ABC was the other way. You know. So, but when I turned four, I think they bought a. A semi-detached Bondi house 
for £6,000 and um, we moved there and so I was brought up in Bondi. But um, well, anyway, we've, I don't know, mum, mum was great, dad was great. I, I took dad to the, um, I, because I liked football, but dad liked Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Joan Sutherland. Um, That's quite an oh, array of women, they're all icons. vastly different, yes, except being icons. Gay icons. Right. And um, he was just obsessed with Greta Garbo and Marlene Dietrich and Roya Swanson. And, you know, I said, Dad, can we go to the football? He said, oh, no, I don't want to go to the football. And so I dragged him once to an Eastern Suburbs final, at the final, final, at the SCG. And he was sort of there with his flag. You look like Dr. Smith. He lost his face. <laughs> oh, the pain, the, the pain. pain. The pain. <laughs> I hated every moment of it, which I adored him for. I actually took him to the Bette Midler concert in, at the State Theatre, and um, he was he went there kicking and screaming. But I gave him one with Bette Midler. He loved Bette Midler, so I was really pleased that I was able to sort of give him something that he'd given me so much of. Yeah. So you went up at NIDA. Ah, yes, NIDA. Um, um, how, how old were you when you went to NIDA? I. I Auditioned the first time at 18, straight out of school. I didn't get in. And um, the, I think the main reason was because I um, did Ariel from The Tempest, which is about the only thing I knew. And because I'd been an usher at the Balmain Bijou for two years, or a year and a half or something, with Reg Livermore's show, The Betty Blockbuster, oh. I went the uh, the old man, hello, how are you? I wonder if you'd like me having a chat. So I, Leonard. I Leonard. Leonard, yeah. 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 No, no, what a beautiful name. And and so I did this mimicry of Reg Livermore and Ariel. You know, it's like, hello. And I think they sort of, they sent me a letter. They said, oh, very, we're interested, but um, work on it. We'll see you next year. And so I went to the University of New England and uh, they seemed to have the best practical arts course there. And I hated it. I hated Armadale. I hated being there. But I went prepared with five speeches for the second one and I only got three or four of them out but Evelyn my girlfriend at the time she drummed it she was she was so strict on me learning the lines you know you've got to get in and she was absolutely wonderful and I yeah I I I got the telegram and I was in and I just couldn't one of the most joyous days of my life getting in what about the three years? Did the joy continue? Loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved being a night. It was like school, but interesting, and I could smoke <laughs> <laughs> on campus. Yeah, I could smoke anywhere. Who were some of the teachers which uh, mm. stand out for you? Well, we had George Whaley, who was um, he was the head of Nida, the head of acting. John Clark, of course, was uh, the head. Elizabeth Butcher. Um, Peter Peter um, Carmody was the history of theatre who gave me 20 out of 20 for a essay I did on Waiting for Godot which I still don't know how I got 20 out of 20 um, George Ogilvy was one of our directors that worked with us and um, Jeffrey Rush he had a lot to do with our year right. and we did clowning he'd been to uh, Jacques Lecoq yep. in Paris and uh, an amazing teacher we also and in first year we did a show called The Pub Show, the Beauty Bosco Cobber Digger Sports Show. And it was five of us, including Heather Mitchell, which, who was in my year, and a wonderful actor, brilliant actress, and um, four other, three, four guys and one girl. We did this show we'd written, and we put it on for the, sh- the whole of night. It was there in a pub show sort of 
atmosphere drinking and we got the first standing ovation I've ever had. <clears throat> it was amazing. And George Wiley made us go out to pubs and, and do it. And it was fantastic. It was so exciting. Um, but George, uh, sorry, Jeffrey Rush, in second year, we did a thing called Mirth of a Nation, which was a, a vaudevillian show. And we were we made all these sort of little vignettes and stuff. We had the Russian knock-knock joke thing. It was like, knock, knock. <laughs> and it was really funny it was a very successful show you know, Jeffrey Rush was a big influence on me for me at NIDA and many other people George Ogilvy he did our um, our last show which Terry Clark calls the worst show ever <laughs> Strife by John Goldsworthy. It wasn't a very good production. This is your graduation play. It was our graduation mm. play, yeah. And um, just before that, at NIDA you do about six weeks of TV work. And I think it hasn't changed much right. since then, um, which is a pity because, you know, we pretty much do a lot of TV these days in film. And I took to TV very, very easily. I just went, oh, this is naturalism. Just be yourself, you know. And um, every year, Crawford Productions would come and they would um, look for somebody that they may have needed. The year before me, it was The Sullivans, which I loved. I loved The Sullivans. That was a great show. Wasn't oh, that period drama over several years? And yeah. Telling all those war stories. Amazing stories. And, and uh, from the, many perspectives. The period, you know, and how beautiful it was done. And, and great characters. Uh, Vivian Gray's yeah, Mrs. Jessup. Vivian Gray. Yeah. I yeah. met her. I couldn't believe it. She was so nice. So bohemian. And um, my boyfriend at the time, he was in third year, Graham Harvey, he got the Sullivans in his year, as did Genevieve Pico, who was, we, we shared a house together in, um, it's called Nithsdale, Liverpool Street, Darlinghurst. And it was uh, Gary Scale, Graham Harvey, myself, Susan Lyons and Genevieve Pico, five of us, isn't it? There's a Amazing. cast and a half. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? So I thought, yeah, great. Graham got got the role, and he ended up having to marry Kitty, Kitty Sullivan, Susan Hannaford. Susan Hannaford. Uh, she became a costume designer, I think, didn't she? Uh, uh, not a costume, a fashion designer, I believe. She was a very alarming um, sixty minutes or something interview of her in Los Angeles. Now, where she done very well, and right. she, but she's she's a freak. She's a very strange woman. Right. Um, Graham just retired. He just said, no, I resigned. Oh, I can't do it. And he, only 12 months he did that. But in my year, they were looking for um, an actor, an actor, in a show called Cop Shop. And uh, I got it. And So uh, that was your first pro gig out of NIDA? Pre-NIDA, in fact. Okay. I um, they, they did the audition, as they do. And I, um, a few days later, they said, look, we want you. We want you now. And that was about seven or eight weeks before we graduated. And I said, well, what am I going to do? He said, and George Wiley said, well, you've got to go and do it. Yeah, you said, well, uh, luckily, I had a small part in the, in the graduation play. So I flew down and did my thing. And I was like, my God, you know, it's TV, I'm in TV. All the people in NIDA were going, oh, I wouldn't do that show in a million years. It was like, oh, we do theatre, you know, we do art. And um, I must admit, I'd seen the show, and Gil Tucker and Terry Norris, the two there, there's C.S. Sergeant A. Riley and um, Roy, Billy. Roy Baker. And um, I thought, hey, Roy, Roy Baker, not Roy Vaudevillian. I thought, 
this is ridiculous. How can they? That's so bad. What do I get? The role of smack bang in the middle of those two. You know, the straight man. jokers. No, no, I wasn't a straight man, really. I became my own little character and stuff. But um, sick, yeah. So anyway, there was a plane strike, and um, we were doing the play um, strife. And I had to have a car drive up from Melbourne, pick me up at the theatre after the show and drive me down to Melbourne. And people go, in my year, they go, my God, because they were very jealous, very jealous. But Cop Shop was a great, uh, great introduction to the world, the arts world. They had guest criminals every week. You know, we did two hours a week of drama. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot. And um, every week there'd be, you know, new guest criminals. So I got to meet virtually the, the great, you know, art actors of the whole of Australia. Every week there'd be a new one. It was really good. It's a great grounding. I did it for 16 months. <sighs> so you would have scored representation straight out of night, Oh, yes. Well, because the, then, because I just got this role out of the blue and they said, oh, you've got to go now. George said, well, have you got an agent in mind? I went, oh, duh, Bill Shanahan. And he said, well, I'll ring him. And they rang and he said, yes, I'll, I'll, um, I'll do the contract for Nicholas. And um, he did. And, and I thought, oh, okay. And then they had the audition week, day, and that's when the, all the, you know, the agents come and see you do your little monologue. And I... I was given quite a few cards that night, which the day which was very flattering, but I already had an agent in a way. So about two or three months into a you know, 10, 15 phone calls with Bill, you know, with this and that, this minor stuff, I said, one day I said, um, Bill, have you taken me on? He said, oh, yes, of course I had. And I went, oh, phew. So, yeah, that was the, the beginning of a beautiful relationship, with only, which unfortunately only lasted about 10 or 11 years because he um, died very... Uh, suddenly, well, not suddenly, but he died very young, very, very young. Everyone says what a lovely bloke he a was. Wonderful, amazing, amazing person. Uh, he had, and he knew how to construct a career. He knew how to um, tell you, don't do this. Do, uh, I went, I did cop shop for 16 months and he wouldn't let me do it any longer. He said, no, you've got to get out of there, you'll be typecast. And I said, but they're offering me a motorcycle cop. I could be a motorcycle cop. <laughs> went, nah, sorry, out, you have to go. And so I did, and I didn't work for six months. I said, thanks, Bill. You know, um, but, and then I got off, I, I went for a commercial, Palm Olive Gold. Don't wait to be told, you need Palm Olive Gold. And I went for the audition, then I got a call back, and then I got the role. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the smelly guy. You know, the, the, wait, don't wait to be told, you need Palm Olive Gold. And I said, Bill, I can't do this. I can't do it. He said, but you've got to do it. If you do the callback, that means you want the gig. Well, I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. He said, God, he was so angry with me. Got got me out of that particular contract. And um, so to this day, I'm I'm sort of proud of it, but I've never done a commercial. Never. Mm. You could have been the pummel of gold. The smelly guy for three years. Uh, Peter Mockery got that gig. So what was the next gig that came along after that six months hiatus? Well, there was a six-month dearth, and um, I did the Scottish play, which we call Macbeth. Um, I had uh, Spear Carrier number two, I think it was. Hugo Weaving was number three. We shared a dressing room, Hugo and I. and Because um, he was a classmate at NIDA, wasn't he? He was a year below me. Right. 
and I actually went. I saw his audition. I was helping out in the was, as a reader, were you? Or? Yeah, I, they just needed sort of people to help, you know, do the limbering up, warm up exercise, or whatever. But um, I saw his his audition. I went, oh my god, this guy is amazing! I knew he was going to get in. Um, but we, yeah, so we were both sort of small time actors there. I, even though I'd done cop shop, but <laughs> um, we used to go in the dressing room, go Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> which um, probably some people won't like hearing that but yeah. um, I'm not superstitious or neither is he so yeah we did that amazing production Brian Thompson uh, designed it uh, it was John Bell Robin Nevin playing the two leads amazing uh, Colin Friel Steve Bisley um, Sue Lyons Pat, Pat Bishop David Franklin yeah all sorts of people in that it was a bit of a fizzer I'm talking too much about no, these things. I saw you play Macbeth. You, you did? Yeah, oh, the on. other one, yeah, the, uh, the Darlinghurst Theatre yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was a bit of a fizz at that one too because, um, I don't know, but I think it was mainly the choreographer got in the way of that. We had all these really strange moves. I don't know, I remember all that. But I, was, I remember the first audience we had and at the end of it went, oh my God, we're in a, we're in a dud. <laughs> <laughs> one of the first ones of my entire career did you enjoy Shakespeare? I love Shakespeare I think Shakespeare's amazing in that you know it's, I always use this it's used to death but an onion it's an onion and you peel away each layer layer upon layer and doing a show I did Midsummer Night's Dream for three seasons at the Sydney Botanical Gardens and I played um, Oberon and um, uh Thesis? Thesis, sorry. Thesis, Oberon, and they actually managed to get in Quince as well by a bit of... Um, That's subtle. a lovely little character part. I, well, I played him as Frank Thring in a moo <laughs> <laughs> And I, I went for the laughs. But um, just a joy to do a show at City Botanical Gardens. You'd arrive at you know, sunset and just the, the park and do a bit of Shakespeare in the park. A thousand people come and see you, laugh their heads off and get paid a thousand dollars a week. What could be better? Yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. I also did Taming of the Shrew. I played Petruchio in the, it was in a Melbourne production, which also then came to Sydney. Um, the Melbourne production, uh, Kate, was played by um, Nadine Garner. And lovely she, actress. Lovely, lovely mm. actress. And I had previously done... Um, I think a show called The Henderson Kitchen, which was a love. The Henderson. Oh, you knew the Henderson. Yeah, yeah. You'd be the right age. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. I, every Sunday night, I think it was, we tuned into that, and um, Kylie Minogue was in it. She was. And and Nadine, yes, I was in love with and Nadine. Nadine Mendelssohn. Right. Yeah. His first job. Um, I was Mike Henderson, the you know the uncle, yeah. uh, too old to be, too young to be looking after these kids, but. Um, yeah, we in the Colac Motor Inn where we used to stay on location. We'd seen Nadine, we hear Nadine and Kylie Minogue going, why, singing "Why Did Fools Fall in Love" in perfect harmony. We go, oh, "Isn't that cute?" And we go, oh, "Nadine's going to be a big star, big star." And, and Kylie became Kylie. We went, "What?" But um, she was such a sweet little girl, and I had no idea that that was going to happen to her. I still am a bit befuddled, but <laughs> I mean. She's amazing. Yeah, good yeah. luck to her, yeah, great. Yeah. But a similar experience with Nicole Kidman, too, oh, yeah. I guess, doing Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. The miniseries. Yeah, well, that was so good. I mean, I Kennedy Miller 
were the doyens of the miniseries, and that was a big thing in the 80s. It's really where the miniseries started, was in the 80s. Now it's on you know, Netflix and all those, they do so many of them. But, um, yeah, I, I was doing Pride and Prejudice in uh, Queensland, Brisbane, with Helen Morse, who um, was playing Elizabeth, I was playing Darcy, and we were in rehearsals, and I got a, a message to call Shanahan's, and he had to go out to a phone booth in those days. I rang up to him and he said, uh, you got the part. I said, what are you talking about? In Vietnam. I said, well, uh, did I? What, what part? And he said, oh, the lead role. I went, what? And I just, like, practically fainted. And I'd always wanted to work with Kennedy Miller. They'd done the, pers- the dismissal. They'd done uh, Bodyline, which I thought was amazing. And I really wanted to be in that. And I tried, but I didn't get it. But I tried for a very small part in Vietnam and I got it. Anyway, it turns out Vietnam's about a family, basically. It's not really, it's about the war, but it's about that time in Australia. <clears throat> it's a mother, father, son, daughter. The mother, Goddards. The Goddards, exactly. And uh, Barry Otto is the father. Uh, so you get the political side. He's a, 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 a politician. Um, Veronica Lang plays um, mum. Mum. So you go through women's liberation. And she's a mousy housewife. She goes through that. I'm the conscript that goes through the war, and my younger sister is Nicole Kidman, who goes from sex, through sex, drugs, and rock and roll, plays from 14 to 21 in in a 10 hour show. And Nicole's talked about this quite a lot that Vietnam was one of the best things that she ever did in her early years because it gave her that breadth of character yeah. to go from you know 14 year old to 20. A journey, and a journey, mm. absolutely. And that's what we you know actors love that journey, you know, being able to go from. You know, a to Z, as I often say in theatre, you know, every night in a, in a show. It's a huge change. Yeah. The ca- yeah. Catharsis that goes on. And, and, and your character also yeah. starts off. Very meek. And, well, sort of naive, 19-year-old. And uh, a photographer wants to be a photographer, goes through the war and is completely changed by it. And, um, yeah, he becomes a sort of shadow of his former self. And the very last scene is... They tell me that it's a very moving scene, and um, it's just I say hi. It's back with my family for the first time in years, and I, hi, it's me, sort of, and that's the last line of the the whole show. Um, that was a wonderful show to be in. One uh, Nicole and myself, a uh, uh, Logie, most popular actor and actress, and also won us the best actor actress in the Australian Film Institute. So that was a peer one, peer group one, and we also got the Logie, the popular one. So that was a very, very satisfying. Well, you were very aware politically of, no. of the Vietnam War and what was happening? I didn't know anything. So how do you prepare a role like that? I'm not a great one for research, as Terry Clark keeps saying. Don't say research, it's research. Um, I'm not a great one for that. I, I, I look at the, the, the script... If there's something I don't understand about the person, I will go and look, then I will research it. But um, I try to look at it. Okay, this guy's a photographer. I know photography. I, I, I love photography. So, I, yeah, I get that. Uh, he's got a sister, which I don't have. So what's that feel like? And I think it out logically. And But I don't say, oh, I need to know everything about the Vietnam War. I, you know, I, I knew I had to look up, yeah, okay, when was conscription? When did it start? When did it finish? Why did it happen? Why were people sent to war and, and, and all that? And it's all explained very well on the series anyway. But... Um, so, like, with, say, somebody like Brick in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, um, 
I don't. I didn't have to do a heap of heap of research about that because you see a gay character, and I have to think about. It. I think yes, he is actually. He's got he's got a broken leg, and that's sort of the symbol of him actually showing some something wrong with him inside as well. And he's in love with a boy, and that's mainly his problem. So he had that secret, which isn't really ever explained in the show, but yeah, it's um. It's there. It's that subtext of Tennessee It's a subtext Williams, that I yeah. have and, and I can go on stage with. Yeah. That was a wonderful production. Tony Tripp designed He did a second one that I did straight after that. was uh, Present Laughter, Noel Coward. And this, the opening, what people walked into the theatre, it was this giant cocktail bar, 20 minutes, 20 metres high with a six-foot ashtray and a, a, a cigarette. Wow. And then the whole thing just opened like that. And it was this black and white and grey Art Deco set. Absolutely stunning. And it was just like, people just clap that, you know. They're like, God. And John Gaydon was um, the main... Uh, Gary. Gary, yes, Gary. And uh, the amazing cast, Julia Blake. First job ever for Alison White, who was just incredible. Barbara Cook, um, Robert Menzies. Paul English. Yeah, that was really great. I'm jumping all over the place. No, no, I love it. That <laughs> were the days when you could get really good sets on stage. Tony Tripp did the most beautiful set for Cat Catlin Hot Team Roof. It's just it's just very realistic, you know, just this bedroom. But a massive cyclorama which had the fireworks go off at one stage and just so easy to work in and Victoria Longley who played Maggie and I to my brick Bud, Bud Tingle played um, Big Daddy Mendacity Mendacity <laughs> I love that scene right. yeah and Victoria Longley she was probably one of my favourite actresses and I worked with her lots and lots another classic of the American canon which you I think you believe that you've done it three times is John Proctor in The Crucible three times what do you garner as an actor by revisiting a role in in another production? I've done so many productions where I've done another season, up to five, six seasons of certain really successful shows. I try. It's. I, I'd like to say, oh, I discovered all these new things, but unless it's. Um, I didn't learn a great deal, I have to say. It taught me more about my age. And the third one um, was the State Theatre Company of South Australia. And by the end of that show, I was absolutely exhausted. And it was, I call it the acting Olympics, playing John Proctor. It's really, it's a very full-on role. I did another show uh, three, three, four times, Myth, Propaganda and Disaster in Nazi Germany and Contemporary America. And they were different productions? It was the Playbox, Malthouse. Um, then it went to Adelaide as well, but that same season. But then it was done in Sydney. At I the, saw it at the Griffin. At the Griffin. Yeah. So you couldn't get two more different sort of stages. And the first time I'd ever worked at the Griffin, and it was absolutely terrifying because you got that audience right there. And it's a very intimate play, and I was on stage for three hours, getting tortured to death by the end of it. So I actually kicked um, Crucible out of its difficulty range. But um, I loved work. I love working at the Griffin, because having that honesty that you have to have for them to believe it and for, for you to actually uh, to you know, have them in the story, and it's so intimate. I love that. I absolutely love it. 
Yeah. I've done several other shows there. The Holding the Man uh, was a huge hit. And um, I didn't know much about I'd never read the book. I read the book, obviously. I did some research. I didn't read the book in rehearsals. But um, And I suppose Tim Conagrave was at night after you. I didn't know Tim. Right. Uh, Victoria Longley, who's actually Peppy in the sh- in the, the book, um, she knew him very well, and I talked to her about it. But um, I, uh, it was amazing doing that show. I, I, there's a, if you've seen it, you saw it, yeah. But there's uh, the two main actors, the boys, and then there's an older actor, older actress, a younger actor, and a younger actress, and we all played multiple roles. I think I had ten or eleven roles. The dressing room in that place was just ridiculous. But um, it was just so fulfilling. And to see an audience all in tears at the end and standing every night, it was just just so wonderful. It was just so beautiful to share that. Heavy subject matter. Oh, God, yeah. Does that take a a toll on you as as an actor, having to live through that every night? I must say I don't take my work home with me very often, but... um, Sometimes that one got to me because I had several um, lovers and boyfriends and certainly friends and acquaintances that so many people died in the 80s of AIDS and the early 90s. One of my best, one of my closest affairs was with a guy called Stuart Bennett who um, got it and we... I had I had survivor's guilt for a long. I still do a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I sort of avoided it really, but you know all these other people they just went down like oh, it was just terrible. And yeah, so reliving all that and holding the man and showing it to an audience it doesn't really you know the younger people they don't really understand what happened. And I think that's still a story that needs to be told and retold because you know, it's it's something that the I was actually a seventy-eighter as well. That I, I was actually quite innocently there. I didn't know what was going on. I just went to a march, and suddenly I'm sort of pulling lesbians out of the Black Mariah in King's Cross. But um, so I've seen the gay the gay scene also sort of just rise and then collapse and then rise again. I think it sort of all peaked in two thousand, uh, the Olympics, and then after that, Sydney became this very sort of nana state that nobody's allowed to do anything. And but we lived through stuff that you know you couldn't get away with now. Yeah. But um, yeah, doing whole. I think the only one that really got to me was uh, Macbeth. And then I took him home and I thought, I tried to think devious, nasty thoughts, murderous thoughts, and it really played on my psyche. And I I shouldn't have, it actually played around with me rather badly. Yeah. I don't think I should have done that. It didn't work. Take the character off with the costume. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, on joyful notes, you've done a couple of musicals also. I have, yes. The Sentimental Bloke at at the Q Theatre, wasn't it? Yeah. In the, the great heady days of Doreen Warburton. Doreen, she likes to Doreen. Doreen Warburton. Right. Thank you. Uh, it was opening the new Q, Q Theatre in 1983. And, um, yes, yeah, so they wanted to start it with a bang. And it was actually a cast of 2021. 20, and I was playing the bloke. And I think I had five or six solos in that. And Had you been a singer before that or sung at school? I'd done a bit of at Bobby Van Hughes. Right, uh, uh, the boyfriend did a little bit of that. Um, I did actually. We did a show, a, a, a school concert thing. That I did father and son that 
uh, Cat Stevens song and I sang there's no time to make a change let's relax make it easy and then uh, I don't I was given reviews that sentimental bloke like um, oh, he has a you know a good voice or a you know, he handles, he has, he can hold a note or something like that, which is a bit of a slap in the face. But, um, yeah, I, I really enjoy singing. I loved it. And um, I went, I did a West Side Story audition for Tony in a production. I think it was about 1983 or four, And I was so terrified. It was an entire, you know, the, the, all the producers there, the nine or ten of them, and David Atkins went before me. I could hear him. He had a ghetto blaster bigger than himself. And he, he did this <laughs> amazing saying. He danced, he acted, he tapped. And I had to come in the next. And I, and I think I sang out here on my own from fame. And I said, look, I've got a chair there. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to stand first. I might use the chair. No, I'm going to start sitting. And then I'll stand up. It's, no, actually... Change that. I'll, and I just went on. I was babbling. I didn't know what I was doing. And at one stage in the song, I went, out here and sat down on my own. I was like, what are they? What are they? I didn't get a call back. But um, Mamma Mia, that was my one. So, I uh, was successful. And, and it was sort of, I mean, with great respect, it was a bit of a surprise to sort of see this, this actor sort of playing the lead in sort of one of the most sought-after musical roles. Yeah, tell me about it. There would be lots of competition from musical theatre doyens up for, up for that. Oh, there it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what fun. Oh, so much fun. But just getting the role was so much fun because I... Well, it wasn't fun, it was daunting, but I, I went for one of the smaller roles. I went for Bill, who uh, is this, the Australian one who doesn't sing much. And Philo um, Lloyd arrived from London, the director... And she said, I'd like you to read for Sam. And I said, but Sam sings properly. And she said, yeah, that's all right. Just, just read Sam. And she liked it, obviously. Suddenly I'm being shunted off to a side room with Bjorn from ABBA and being learnt, you're knowing me and knowing you and, and, and knowing me, knowing you, and SOS. And the next day I had to come back and do six hours or more auditions. And then the next day they said, oh, we really like your acting. We're not sure about your voice. We're sending you off to a singing teacher for three months and then we'll reassess you. They paid me out of a state theatre company show that I was in and then I, I studied singing. I can't remember the name of the guy. So Normie Rowe. He, he taught Normie Rowe how to sing and I wish I could remember that guy's name. But... Um, then they said, uh, they flew me over to Los Angeles for the final audition. And uh, I got there and I was absolutely terrified and I couldn't sleep. And so I drove to West Hollywood and I found a, a karaoke bar. And I said, do you have uh, SOS? And they said, sure. And I, so I got up in front of 300 strangers. Like, this guy's from Australia. You're going to audition for uh, Mamma Mia tomorrow. And I said, uh, yeah. And so I sang SOS really well, and they just yeah yipped and cheered. And I went back to the hotel, slept like a baby for seven hours, did the audition in front of Bjorn, who wasn't to- I wasn't told was going to be there, and um, on the spot got the role. Got the key. Amazing, and I just loved doing it. Absolutely loved it. There's something about the end of that show. Well, it's the whole show, but just at the end, you had the redi- the, the suits, you know, the, the three call. dads, yeah, yeah. yeah. And doing Waterloo at the end of it, and me going right down centre stage, you know, with his ridiculous costume on, and seeing the entire audience with joy, joy on their face, yeah. standing and clapping and dancing, and 
to finish a night off every night for you know six eight nearly two years i was like wow this is great and you know it's such a nice sort of respite for me from doing heavy stuff that i usually do i'd love to do more musicals but i'm not a great singer (laughs) never will be get a skin teacher so you've mastered theater you've mastered television you've mastered musical theater what about film did hollywood ever beckon Um, I I went to Holly. I went to Los Angeles at least. I love travel. I think I talked about that, but I usually went there in party mode. Or um, I'm on holiday now. I don't want to do this. I don't know how to do it. I don't like rejection. I don't know. I don't think I could start from the beginning. One night I was at the midnight shift, and um, I met this American guy and uh very attractive and uh he said do you want to come home back to my place i said sure let's do it and ended up at the Siebel townhouse ended up at the presidential suite had the had a very nice time thank you very much i woke woke up the next morning he was on the phone he was going catherine Hepburn will not do that for that price and mel gibson will never come and who is this guy and i just slowly over half an hour i thought he's an agent he's mel gibson's agent he's catherine Hepburn's agent he's michelle pfeiffer's agent so i rushed to the bathroom and <laughs> slapping my face washing it doing my hair and like, then going back to the bed you know so, so oh i just woke up oh, i'm so beautiful and i woke up and i said oh you were an agent and he said yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm an actor actually we know yeah see ya <laughs> and uh, and I had to bring Bill and I told him about meeting Ed LaMarta, who is well, considered one of the great legendary agents. He unfortunately died as well, but um, agents of his era, of all time, really. And um, I had shared the bed with him. And I told Bill, he said, um, Ed says to you know, meet up with him in Los Angeles the next time you do. And I, unfortunately, my father died very soon after that, and I couldn't. And I let that moment lapse. But I, I did a man from Snowy River too, the less um, the less successful one. But uh, it was actually at the time the most expensive uh, film ever made in Australia. And um, I was the villain. And it opened in nine hundred cinemas in America. And I was told Bill said, "Go now, go now." And I didn't. Oh. I said, I, "I don't know. I don't. I wished I had in a way, but." Bill also said to for me to stay, wait here, do good jobs here in Australia. Let them come to you. You look at super people like Judy Davis, Mel Gibson in Mad Max, um, uh, uh, Muir's Wedding with, with Tony Collette. You know, they did good stuff in Australia and the world saw them and then they got these international careers. So he said, wait here, do stuff here and... He also said once to me when I was walking in, he said he was talking to a very, very high-profile actor. I won't name him. But he said, if there's anything to do with me, you're going to be ten times bigger than that bastard. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he, he really believed in me. But um, unfortunately, yeah, he died in 1990, and that was a really big loss, really yeah. big. To a lot of actors and, and to the so industry. Yeah. Oh, Totally. Unfortunately, his name is still around. With uh, well, it's the mentioned so many times Shanahan's. in your podcast. Yeah. Shanahan's Bill Shanahan comes up all the time. Yeah, yeah. Did Kirk Douglas do that uh, second? No, um, he w- <laughs> apparently on the very last day of the first one, he walked off and didn't speak to anybody. Huh. Hated doing it, apparently. But Brian Dennehy took over. Right. 
who didn't really tag to me for some reason. It turned out he's very homophobic. But, um, yeah, it was was a wonderful four months. I mean, they asked me, you know, they said, when I went for the role, they said... um, can you ride a horse? I said, oh, yeah, of course I can. I said, last time I'd been on a horse was 10 years previous and I'd ended up on a tree, cracked ribs in Coffs Harbour Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified of horses. I read the script and it says, Alastair, Colonel Alastair Patton Jr. arrives. He is the best horseman in the country. I said, oh, my God, <laughs> I got myself into. Mm-hmm. But we did three weeks of dry riding over the, the Southern Highlands. It was... One of the most exciting and beautiful experiences of my career was just being on horseback every day, learning to how to ride a horse and really do it quite well. And uh, you know, helicopter shots, me stealing a, a hundred horses, you know, and being in the middle of these hundred wild horses when you're being filmed. It's really quite heady stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. You've never been. You've never shied about your sexuality. No. Well, I, I, I was a bit there about it for five or six years. Right. Is this at the sort of height of career? Yeah, I didn't, I, I, didn't ex- I didn't sort of go, hey, I'm gay, but I, I didn't ever sort of say I wasn't. But no, it actually, uh, when Nicole and myself in Vietnam did that, that's sort of around the time that they twigged. And I hate to say it, but to be honest, you know, they, they really helped Nicole they sort of dropped me, and I think that was really because they found out that I was gay, right. and uh, they didn't know how to handle that at the time. And maybe if it happened now, it might might be all right. <clears throat> but yeah, that, that's that was a bit upsetting. And uh, was there much homophobia around? Do you think, or was it just ignorance? Both. Right. Yeah, I I think um, I never I never saw homophobia. I mean, because I'm, and this has been brought up one or two times in your your podcast. Is this? Being an actor and being gay, you cannot be an overtly effeminate person if you want to be a proper... Get the work. A, you get the work. Yeah. Because most 95% of roles are heterosexual. You know, you have to be in love with a woman. You have to show, love, you know, you have to show sexuality that is not your own. And so um, I'm very good at covering that up. I, I discovered I was gay very young. When I was 14, 15. Um, and... Uh, so when I was at school, I played the game. I had a girlfriend. So I had girlfriends. I had the you know the, the hot, sexy girlfriend, and I'd always get to third base, and I'd say, "I'm saving myself a marriage," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, off I'd be at Lady Jane Beach, which is a nudist beach, where I'd be meeting my boyfriends, and never the two sort of uh, worlds would ever collide. And um, so I knew how to sort of you know put it into sort of separate boxes but um so that was really good for me starting out because i never people say i don't act gay but i certainly have i sometimes could have become a bit of a flamer oh we can all be flamers of course yes in the dressing room exactly (laughs) but when you're out there on stage and you're playing a role yeah 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 do you ever get starstruck with oh god yeah other actors um oh um yeah one in particular uh Betty Davis. I uh, was uh, I was seventeen. My my cousin Dinah Edie, 
um, she and I were obsessed with Betty Davis, and we Dad was obsessed, and we watched the Sunday afternoon movies and, and Bill Collins introducing her, and we just like we're just the biggest fans of Betty Davis ever. And she came out to Australia, I think it was, it was in 1975, and she did a, a thing, a, an audience with Betty Davis. It was in the concert hall and showed big film clips. Yeah, 50 minutes of show of showing her film clips, and then uh, uh, she'd come out and say, "What a dump!" and uh, take all. Uh, questions from the audience. Anyway, we found out that she was staying at the Siebel Townhouse in the presidential suite, which is uh, later <laughs> play a very suite. important role. Yeah, and uh, but we went we, for some reason we were nobody stopped us. We went up to the top of the presidential suite. We could hear her. She said, Don't you talk to me like that? Oh, damn! She was having an argument with somebody on the phone. We were screaming. So he went up to the, the swimming pool, wrote this long letter saying, Dear Miss Davis, we, we are such big fans of yours. Uh, we've watched every film you've ever done. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, and we said, Look, if, if you will accept seeing us, please take the Do Not Disturb sign off the door and we'll come back in 10 minutes. So we knocked on the door, rushed back into the lift, came back in 10 minutes, and there's a, sh- a sign there, a message saying, Are you coming to my show any night? If so, what night? And I'll have your names backstage. Betty Davis. And we go, ah! And we go, oh my God, 17 years old, just going crazy. And of course, we were going to the show. Dad had made sure of that. And um, I told Dad, I said, we're going to meet Betty Davis. And he went, oh, yeah, sure. Don't be stupid. And anyway, we got to the stage managers and they had our names. We were ushered up to... Um, to her dressing room and she opened the door Bill Collins actually opened the door but then she came in she said you're the culprits <laughs> and we talked for about five minutes I haven't got a clue what she said I was like Ugh. and I kissed her uh, I said goodnight and I kissed her on the cheek and I've always had a that's just one of my great memories Betty Davis I mean you can't get much better than that no no Betty Davis <laughs> eyes yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, we covered everything. Oh, there was one thing that I did that was really interesting. Um, it was a show called Yellow Thread Street. It was for Yorkshire Television. It was set in Hong Kong. And um, Robert Taylor, I don't know if you... Not yes, the indeed. Robert Taylor. No, no, no. Robert Taylor. The um, young actor. Long uh, Australian actor. Yes. Yes. Graduate of Whopper. Oh, was he? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, we both went for the lead, one of the leading roles. Uh, it was an ongoing cop show in set in Hong Kong, and it was between me and him. And he got it because he was blonde, because they wanted somebody that would stand out a bit more in you know, Asian sort of communities. And so, but I got the, so the the second prize, and I got a, a guest role. And they gave me a first class ticket to Hong Kong. I said, "Can I?" Turn? It was just after Dad had died, and it was just and. Um, I said, can I take my mum and get two economy seats? They said, oh, sure. But they actually turned them into business class. And we had this wonderful month where my mother was, you know, just on set every day. Everybody adored her, of course. Janty Yates was the uh, a costume designer who went on to win an Oscar for uh, the Gladiator. And um, not the Gladiator. Gladiator! Elizabeth <laughs> <laughs> Taylor. And... Um, yeah, it was just wonderful to be able to have that really quality time with, with my mum. That was great. And, 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 you know, filming in Hong Kong with helicopters and crazy stuff going on, that was a, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm, I, 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 yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an extraordinary life in the theatre, Nick, and um, 
Thank you so much for sort of joining stages. I know you're a, you're a big listener of the. I am a huge fan of the podcast, and I appreciate that. And, oh my um, god, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I think you're doing what you're doing is just so good. And hopefully, in 100, 200 years, we're all dead and gone. They might listen to this and go, "My God, what were they talking about?" <laughs> I'm sure they will be. So, anybody that is listening to this in a hundred years' time, hello, oh, hello. <laughs> What's it like? Do they still have Twitter? Uh, Not good. I, draw, I, I haven't mentioned Joel Edgerton, Tony Collette, uh, Mitchell Gutell, um, Damon Harriman, all sorts of people that I've worked with, Russell Crowe, Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush told me he taught, he learnt film acting from me. Um, Joan Sutherland, who I worked with, and Dad and Dave. Um, oh, did you do that film? Yeah. George Whaley directed George Whaley, yeah. yeah. And, and um, Leah McKern. Leah McKern, Joan Sutherland. They'd sit there eating her pie and chips and... We all go, sings happy birthday. She wouldn't even sing happy birthday. You know, she was very closeted with her career. I remember seeing her when I was doing Aida and she was there in her massive gown eating her pie again, you know, in the green room. She was great. But um, Joel Edgerton, I did a great show with him. Don's Party was another one I didn't talk about with Hugo Weaving and Steve Bisley, uh, Geraldine Turner, all sorts of people in those things. But, uh, great! I was, I've worked in every single um, part of the opera house except the opera theatre, but I worked at the Ben Long Restaurant as a waiter. But uh, yeah, as I eat in the concert hall uh, many times in the drama theatre, the Playhouse about three or four times. So I love the opera house. You know, it's so good to arrive and leave. It's just, it's just such a magnificent building. The office, as I used to call it. You know, just, I'm going to the office. Look at that! What an office! Do you wonder about? The next gig, and if it's going to come along, I, I have great hope. I haven't worked much. I've had some very serious health problems. I need to get myself back into shape, and I'm doing that slowly and gradually. But this year, 2021, is my time to re-enter the workforce, and I'm deaf. I'm so determined to get back to it because I, I let it go. I, I had some some problems. I had some some times when I I didn't really follow. I've always had it, had it handed to me on a platter. I never had to work for anything. Everything was given to me almost, you know. And I, it was an extremely fortunate career. And but then when the phone stopped ringing, I didn't know how to to actually be proactive in doing something about it. And um, I also I didn't know any other skills. And um, of course, I was fairly successful as an actor. I didn't need to have. A, what you have, or what Gary, all sorts of people have a teaching degree or some other thing that they can fall back on. So when Uber came over, came across, I went, oh, I could do that. And I drive. I like people. I like driving. I like people. Um, that's a no-brainer. And it's about the only thing I have a skill at is driving. So I've been doing that for the last few years on and off, and I love it. It's like a little show. Each, you know, each person, three or two or three people get in a car and I go, hello. Oh, and I try to be as nice as possible and give them an experience. Sometimes yep. they want to listen to my music, my tunes, and I've got some really good music that, uh, you know, like uh, full-on uh, ambient house or techno, and, and they, I whack it up with my fabulous bow sound system, and they go, oh, man, this is the best ride ever. So you know, <laughs> I, that's a little bit of theatricality still coming out of me, but I'm determined to get back to it. And if there's anybody out there that wants to employ me, look, I'm a good guy. I do. I'm very punctual these days. I'm, I'm very reliable and I'm very damn good. The end.
Nick is an excellent actor who has given us so many wonderful nights in the theatre and in front of the screen. Terrific passion, craft and commitment to his glorious adventure as an actor. Stage's guest today, Nicholas Eady. Thanks, Nick, for your candid conversation. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You've been listening to The Stages Podcast. A new episode drops every Thursday. And don't forget, you can always dip into the vast archive. Check out the website at stagespodcast.com.au to peruse the many conversations available to devour. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.